When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we're on the road in Birmingham for the British Science Festival, one of Europe's largest scientific gatherings. Many thousands of people, young and old, will be visiting the campus of Aston University this week to enjoy hundreds of events covering every facet of science and social science, from anthropology to zoology. In a moment, I'll be talking to two of the star speakers on the opening day, Lord David Sainsbury, President of the British Science Association, which organises the festival, and Alex Haslam of Exeter University, who will be talking about the science of leadership. And later, we'll be hearing, as usual, about the pick of the research in Science magazine. This week, it's about how to stop climate change. In general, the problem of climate change has tremendous inertia, and some of that inertia relates to the natural carbon cycle. But there's also inertia in the man-made infrastructure that is emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Now I'm sitting in a studio at Birmingham City University with Lord Sainsbury, President of the British Science Association, and Alex Haslam, Psychology Professor at Exeter University. David, you were Science Minister from 1998 to 2006, and during those eight years, you persuaded your ministerial colleagues, and in particularly the Treasury, to expand public funding of research. So from that perspective, how do you see the current prospects of cuts in the science budget? Well, I think it's going to depend on the extent to which um, Vince Cable is able to persuade the Treasury that uh, uh, this is not a case where there should be sort of just equal cuts for every kind of expenditure, uh, but that those which are really essential for our economic uh, future are guarded and, and uh, uh, encouraged. I mean, it, I was rather encouraged by, in fact, Vince Cable's speech, which he gave last week, in which he made all the points that I would have made in, the, in this connection. I mean, he talked about uh, foreign direct investment coming to the UK because of the good quality of our research. He explained about uh, how we have now really good technology transfer from our universities and how essential science is for economic growth. And he also mentioned the fact that, of course, Germany and France um, and the United States are increasing their science budget at this moment because they see the importance of it. So it's going to be a question of uh, whether Vince Cable can persuade the Treasury that uh, we need a, uh, a plan for growth as well as cutting the deficit. We've got to cut, obviously we've got to cut the deficit, but whether there's a plan for growth and science is part of that. How are Britain's researchers going to put the pressure on and really make that case that you've made? Well, I, th I think it's all, it's all about persuasion. Politics is all about persuasion. And I think it's very important that the scientific community keeps hammering away at this point that uh, we are, as I said in my report I did for the government, we are in a race to the top. 
We can't compete against uh, China, uh, whose wages are 5% ours by cutting costs. We've got to do it by innovation and growth. And in the world which we're now entering, where uh, there's not going to be a lot of growth, uh, the only way we can take uh, business from other countries is by moving more into the high-tech areas, having more innovation, and taking business away from them. And science is critical to that. How much do you think the general public understands that argument? Indeed, how much does the general public care about science? Do, do they spend a lot of time thinking about this? No. If this argument is put by politicians and explained, yeah, I think most people, a lot of people would understand that. A lot of people who work in factories understand that you're not going to be able to beat the, the Chinese product, uh, which is made much more cheaply because there's cheap labor. I think those arguments are perfectly understandable, and I wish people would uh, have more confidence in the general public uh, to understand them. Because you were quite concerned during your time as science minister to build up that public engagement with science. Yes, I, I think uh, public engagement with science um, is, is extremely important. The starting point for that is to understand how people approach science. And most British people are, are pro-science. Uh, what they're what they're concerned always about is the sort of modern advances, the latest advances, and whether the government has got control of that. And we need to have good uh, public engagement with science uh, in order to show people that uh, the government is in control, uh, that it uh, is uh, looking at new technologies to see whether there are any ethical, safety, health or environmental problems and dealing with them. Now, Alex, you're a scientist, a psychologist, who takes a lot of trouble to engage the public in your work. How much do you think the public cares about the psychology that you study? Well, I think that's an open question. I think the point is, as scientists, we have to make them care. These things, these are big issues, they matter. And I think everybody who's engaging in this process of the Science Festival is, is painfully aware of the need to make the case for science. I don't think, you know, the, the, there isn't a sort of fixed reservoir of caring or interest. The job of science and any other uh, sphere of activity that you engage in is to influence people to make them understand why these things are important and to make the case. Now, I, actually, I think the case is very strong. The ca I mean, Britain is a, a nation... I wouldn't I would go so far as founded on science. I mean, science is central to our national identity, the achievements of the last, uh, you know, couple of hundred years. Science has been central to them. Um, I think it's going to be even more central to the next 200 years. And unless we unless we're passionate about that, unless we go out there and make the case, we can't expect other people to buy into it. But I, I, I'm here to tell you, it is the most important issue, not just for the future of the economy, I think for the future of the country. I really believe that very passionately. Now, your current research is about the psychology of leadership. How good is the leadership of science? I think um, I think it's variable. I think I think if scientists ever assume that just the, the the motto of the Royal Society is not by authority alone. If we believe that just by saying we're scientists and we know better than you, we can sell the case, we're make, we're getting it badly wrong. But as the fact of the matter is, I think we can engage in arguments, we can engage in debates, we can show real intellectual leadership, and we can provide answers to pressing questions. And to the extent that we do that, we will be... The, the true essence of leadership is to deliver service for one's constituents, for the people that you're treating to lead, the, the followers. And in that case, I think that's the, the citizenship of Britain, the people who need an economy and a country that's working. So 
you know, I, I, I think I think it is good, the leadership within the scientific community. I think perhaps, and I think Lord Sainsbury is absolutely right, we've got to go out there and lead not just scientists, we've got to lead the consumers of science, and we've got to lead critically the politicians who, are, who, are, who have the purse strings. Talking more generally about leadership, what is the secret of a good leader? The real secret to leadership is not about I or me, it's about your capacity to engage with and to mobilize a group. So real leaders are entrepreneurs of identity who, if you like, create a sense of usness, a sense of weeness, they represent that and they advance that in ways that translate the rhetoric of us into a reality of us, of lived experience. And again, it's that process that translated the idea of Rome into the reality of Rome and that made people want to put brick upon brick. David, you've been a business leader as well as a leader as science minister. Do you recognise what Alex is saying? I think so. I mean, it always seemed to me the, the two um, qualities you want in leaders is one is the ability to form a strategy or vision of what you should do. And then the second part of it uh, is to be able to communicate that to people so that they feel involved and feel committed that that is the right way forward. Um, and those are two quite difficult qualities to have, but uh, that seems to me what the essence of leadership is about. Which of the two did you find came more naturally to you, for example, when you were leading Sainsbury's, the company? Well, I think I've always been um, probably better at the communication side of this. And it's, of course, the other thing which is very interesting is um, you can be better or worse at leadership in different circumstances, uh, depending on how really confident you feel about um, uh, the particular subject that uh, you're dealing with and indeed the particular moment in the history of the business or the army or whatever it is that you're leading. Um, so I don't think it's a, it's a quality which is kind of you have and it applies to all circumstances um, and all situations. I think we're going to have to wrap up leadership now and move on to Stuart Wills and his report from Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. A new paper attempts to quantify the commitment to future global warming represented by existing CO2-emitting devices. Here with more on the story is Science's Sophia Kai. According to the IPCC, human activity has contributed to warming the world 0.7 degrees Celsius or more in the last 100 years. But, notes Stephen Davis of the Carnegie Institution of Washington in Stanford, California, even if economic growth stopped today the world would keep on warming for some time. In general, the problem of climate change has tremendous inertia, and some of that inertia relates to the natural carbon cycle. But there's also inertia in the man-made infrastructure that is emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So we tried to quantify that infrastructural inertia by asking a hypothetical question, and that is, what if we never built another CO2-emitting device, but only the ones already in existence lived out their normal expected lifetimes? To do that, Davis and his colleagues assembled data on the greenhouse gas output and expected lifetimes of power plants and motor vehicles worldwide, as well as estimates on emissions from other sectors. They used those data to project how much CO2 would be added to the atmosphere over the next 50 years as that existing infrastructure served out its expected lifetime, and what that might do to global temperatures. What their modeling suggests is that, including only emissions from existing infrastructure, temperatures would stabilize at 1.3 degrees above pre-industrial levels. 
That's well below the international policy benchmark that calls for limiting future man-made global warming to less than two degrees. Qualitatively, what they seem to be saying was the current capital stock is not really where the climate problem lies. Michael Grubb is a professor and senior research associate at Cambridge University and the editor-in-chief of the journal Climate Policy and is not affiliated with this study. The real problem will lie if there's a lot of new development and new investment and new capital stock. And in that sense, it is more of a future growth problem and future investment rather than, say, a need to drastically and prematurely retire existing capital stock. But supporting that future growth without adding to carbon emissions is easier said than done, since global energy demand is expected to soar in the coming decades, and that will require a lot of new energy infrastructure, says Davis. To reach zero emissions by 2050 and, and also meet the projected growth in demand, and especially in the developing world, we'd need to come up with something like 30 terawatts of carbon-free energy and compare that to the fact that we're at less than two terawatts of carbon-free energy today, and you can really get a handle on the challenge that that is. Moreover, says Michael Grubb, findings such as this one need to be interpreted carefully given the complex context of international economic growth, which could cause this study's results to be interpreted in two very different ways, depending on national and political values rather than the science. Some, he says, might suggest that the finding means that addressing emissions is really a problem for developing countries like India and China, where most new growth and new investment is likely to occur. But, on the other hand... You can also, however, look at it in almost the opposite way and say capital stock is a representation of just how much the rich world has sunk into carbon emissions over the course of the 20th century. It's just an illustration of how much of the atmospheric space they have already tried to grab. Stephen Davis suggests that the study's real implications lie in focusing policymakers on the magnitude and importance of the task ahead. I'd like to think that people would see the result really, like I said, framing the extent of the energy transition that we have ahead of us. And I think that it's fraught with issues of global equity, but it's a hugely important problem. And we're hoping that this can help to have people recognize that. For Science, this is Sophia Kai. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Stuart. David, how do you assess the current politics of climate change? How do you think the momentum for global action can be revived after all the setbacks of the last few months? Well, I think, I think um, it's very important that the um, science community in this case um, does get it absolutely clear uh, that when scientists are giving advice on the science, they are just giving advice on the science and do not get into a campaigning mode, which is, I think, what has happened in both of these recent instances about uh, climate change, neither of which, I think, alter at all uh, the, the basic situation, which is, um, uh, as we all know, that there is a very serious problem of man-made climate change, and we've got to do something about it. Uh, what I find um, uh, extraordinary about the situation is, is um, in relationship to GM technology. I mean, I've always supported um, the climate change because I think the science is very solidly uh, based. What I find extraordinary is that the environmentalists who passionately defend uh, the scientific statements about climate change, then when they switch to GM technology, uh, absolutely dismiss or ignore all the scientific evidence or advice. 
Um, and that seems to be very unhelpful. Uh, in this world, we have to say either we believe in the processes of science and what it can achieve, or it doesn't. Uh, you can't sort of just pick and choose on this. That's a very interesting point. What do you think, Alex, the different public attitudes to GM foods and to climate change and the way the public are reacting to the scientific messages? Well, I think it relates to a point that uh, Lord Sainsbury made earlier, which is that, in a way, you don't have influence over all communities at all times. And we're talking about potentially different communities of people being influenced on different topics. And I think, um, you know, scientists who have credibility or can exert leadership over one group at one point in time find it more difficult to exert group uh, leadership over a different group at a different point in time. So I think part of science always has this kind of political dimension to it, which involves not just presenting the science, but also cultivating the identities which create an appetite for that science, of, a particular form of scientific but it, knowledge. But, it, but in this particular case, the group is... The, the, the two people. groups are yeah. the same people yes, yeah, yeah. and reacting yeah. very differently yeah. to supporting science in one context uh, and then apparently feeling uh, no need to support it in another, yes. indeed, indeed to contradict it, yeah. which I, I think is, is interesting and strange. Yes, yeah, so, and I think it points to, the again, the social nature of science. I mean, I'm a, a believer in science as science, but I also think it has this political dimension which is interesting and is indeed an important part of the scientific process and I think sometimes scientists get it wrong when they think that all they have to do is science you have to you have to come to meetings like this you have to speak to audiences you have to engage and if you get that wrong in one way or another then you'll find that there's less appetite for your message well I think that's all we have time for today next week we'll be back in the FT studio with more expert talk about climate change and global warming Thanks to David and Alex for a really fascinating conversation here at the British Science Festival in Birmingham. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.